seek the Lord and his face. He is our teacher. His word is light. It is truth. It sets us free. And we want to acknowledge him in all our ways, acknowledge our dependence upon him, and seek his face during this time together. Holy Father, we come into your presence with joy, with thanksgiving, with grateful hearts. We love you. We bless you. Thank you for your truth that sets us free. Thank you for your word that quickens us and enlightens our eyes and gives hope and faith and direction and peace. And Lord, I want to thank you for making me a woman. Thank you for your divine, wise plan for making male and female. In your image, we are created and we acknowledge that there are differences. We bless you for those differences. We embrace them. And Lord, we want in this session to learn how those of us as women can be more completely conformed to your image. And I know there are men here too, and I, I pray that you'll give to them an understanding and wise heart about how to dwell with their wives according to knowledge and how to provide the kind of covering and protection and leadership in their homes and in our churches that will uh, nurture and, and care for our lives as women. So we bless you. You are our teacher, and we look to you with open and expectant hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm having the joy this year of celebrating, and I am celebrating, 20 years in vocational Christian service. There's no master like Jesus, and I love serving him. I love being in the ministry. I don't love everything about being in the ministry. There are days that are discouraging and um, difficult. I don't love traveling, but I do a lot of it, and I tell people I wouldn't do it for anybody other than Jesus. Um, but he is an incredible master and lover and friend, and I'm so thrilled that as a little girl, he chose me and called me and set me apart for his service. I knew from the time I was very, very young that God's hand was on my life, that I was consecrated, set apart for his service. And I'm so, just can't thank him enough for the privilege of serving him, walking with him for more than those years, but serving him these 20 years in a vocational sense. Most of those years have been primarily involved in ministry to women. And just in the past couple of weeks, uh, I've been involved in leading two women's revival conferences, ministering to about 1,700 women in a more extended fashion. Just in the past couple of weeks, I've had the privilege over these years of meeting thousands and thousands of women, listening to their heart cries, listening to their heartbeat, hearing their stories, weeping with them, rejoicing with them, growing and learning together with them. In one of the conferences uh, just a week or so ago, we had a really neat blessing, and that was that there, there was a handful of uh, men from a local church there who came to the conference to serve, to help with parking and security and, and uh, serving in different ways. But then during the actual sessions of the conference, through Friday evening and all day Saturday, those men stayed in another room in the facility just to pray throughout the whole conference and what a blessing that was to me and to the women and men what an incredible role you have as the priest of your home uh, to provide that prayer covering and protection to your wives and uh, and daughters as well um, 
during the early on in the conference, the men said we would love to pray for these women more specifically. If they'd like to fill out prayer cards, we'll take those prayer cards and pray for them. I uh, don't have them put their names on them, but just have them pray or indicate there any specific burdens for their own life or family that they'd like us to cover in prayer. 500 women in that conference filled out these prayer cards. We turned them into the men, and one of the men afterwards told me what an incredible blessing it was to the men to pray for these requests. And then I was interested by this statement. The man said, I think every husband needs to read these cards so he can better understand what is on the hearts of women and what are some of the issues and the battles that they deal with. Now, I generally speak primarily to women, and I know there are some men here, and I, you're free to listen in today, but I'm really going to share my heart with the women and anything that uh, you men want to pick up as far as your ministry to the women in your life, um, you're free to take home. But I know that as men, perhaps there may be something that's shared today that will help you better understand the needs in your wife's life, in your daughter's lives, and um, better help you perhaps fulfill your responsibility uh, as God's man and God's leader in your home and in your church. As I've talked to, as I said, literally thousands, many thousands of women over these years and um, sat alongside of them and heard them pour out their heart. And just thinking about the women I've met in the last couple of weeks in these conferences, I sat down the other day and made a list of some of the words that come to mind to describe a lot of the women I'm meeting today. I'm speaking of Christian women primarily, women in our churches. And here are some of the words. Don't try to write all these down. But these are just some words. And I want to say these words don't describe all women. Thank the Lord. But these are the, the overwhelming impression I have as I'm meeting and talking with Christian women today. And there's no woman who's described by all of these words. Thank heaven for that, too. Uh, but here are some of the impressions I've received. Uh, so many of them are frazzled, exhausted, burnout, overwhelmed, confused, wounded, angry. A lot of angry women today. Uh, in the church, not just out in the world. Frustrated, discouraged, defeated, depressed, despairing, suicidal. Increasingly, just in recent months, I'm coming across this with uh, more women in a particular setting of women than I would have ever imagined possible who are acknowledging recent thoughts of taking their life. Uh, perhaps some in this room, I would not be surprised. Other words, guilty, ashamed, up and down, unstable, uh, hiding, protecting, pretending, uptight, insecure, lonely, fearful, afraid. And then so many, many women in bondage, in bondage to their emotions, in bondage to food. I hear this over and over and over again. And their weight is not necessarily at all an indicator of whether or not that's an area of bondage. In bondage to the opinions of others, to the fear of man. And then this other sense that so many, many women I'm meeting today are controlled by their emotions. And the problem is that their emotions are out of control. So many controlled by their emotions, but emotions out of control. Now, there are some women, and I thank the Lord for the ones that I meet, who could be described as free, gentle, loving, confident in the Lord, 
secure, but I have to say that they seem to be in the minority. Why is that? And I'm finding that this long list of words, I don't know if I'm just waking up to the reality of where women are, or if it indeed see, is uh, more compounded today than it was when I started out in women's ministry 20 years ago. I have the feeling that there is heightened sense of these issues and problems in women's lives as we're now counseling third and fourth and fifth generations of divorce, of absentee fathers, of domineering mothers, and so on. I believe the consequences and complexities of these issues are being compounded and that we're seeing these words described more and more women even in our churches today. Now, it's politically correct in our culture, in our generation, to say that others have made women this way. Their parents, their husbands, men. And there, are, there, there is a common sense among women today, even among Christian women, that men, some man or men in general, have made me this way that I'm reacting to the hurts or the wounds that have been inflicted on me by my parents or by men. But as we go back to the Genesis account, the beginning of how God created all things, we find that it was not parents who got Eve into trouble. And it was not a man. It was not her husband who got Eve into trouble. In fact, Eve didn't even have in-law problems. I mean, talk about a... A, an environment that should have been an easy one in which to succeed. It was not someone else who got Eve into the trouble, the mother of us all. We are the daughters of Eve. But it was not a man, it was not parents, it was not someone else, but actually it was a woman's own personal choice that placed her in bondage. It had nothing to do with what anyone else did to her. Now, I think that it is helpful in this whole matter of lies women believe and the truth that sets them free to go back to the beginning. And I found myself in recent months going back to the first three chapters of Genesis. We could spend the whole session just here, but we won't. Just by way of very broad brush overview, I want us to examine, if you have your Bible with you, you want to open there to Genesis, the first chapter. And I was reading again yesterday and today in uh, these three chapters, and I want to give you some broad strokes of the difference between the first two chapters and the third chapter. The contrast is stark when you just read this passage straight through. There's some some overwhelming, broad, general impressions that you get in the first two chapters of Genesis. And then there's just like this jarring, dramatic, radical, traumatic change that takes place beginning with the first verse of chapter 3. And we need to see the difference. So I'm going to move down the left-hand column first and just to see how God made it, how God designed things in the beginning as we look at Genesis 1 and 2. And again, these are just some broad observations, not detailed in any sense, of these uh, chapters. First of all, we see that th this plan, the Word of God, the way of God, was initiated by God. In the beginning, God God plus no one, God plus nothing. God was independent. He is autonomous. He d needs no one. He is self-sufficient. In the beginning, God, this plan was started. It was initiated by God. And we're going to see the characteristics of God's plan, God's way as he designed it to be. And then there's another word that uh, jumps out at me through the pages of these first two chapters. It's the word blessing. 
God's way is a way of blessing. God intended that his creation should be blessed, that man should be blessed. And so we read in chapter 1, verse 22, after God had created even the animal kingdom, it says in verse 22, God blessed them. Now, the world would not have us to believe that God wants to bless us, that the way to blessing, the world would say, is to live your life without God. But we see in these early chapters that blessing is inextricably bound up into the heart of God, that if we want to experience blessing, we must be aligned with God. In verse 28, after God creates man, male and female created he them, and God blessed them. And then we see in chapter 2, verse 3, and God blessed the seventh day. So we see a God who wants to bless his creation and his created uh, uh, man and woman. And then we see that God's way is based on the truth. There's a sense of absoluteness, of rightness, of purity, of wholeness, of truth. There's no shadow of turning with God. He is absolute noonday. There, there's no discrepancy with him. There's no shading. There's no fudging. And we see God's ways are clear and they're right and they're true. And that's why when you see a man or woman who has really embraced the truth, that their eyes are clear. The light of the body is the eyes. And there's a clarity and a sweetness and a, and a uh, purity there because God's way is based on the truth. And then as we read these chapters, there's the sense we get of the certainty of God's word. God said... Let there be light, and there was light. God said, everything God said came to be. It was true. It was established forever, O oh Lord. Thy word is established in the heaven. Every word of God is pure. It is true. There's a certainty about God's word. And even when God commands the man, you can eat off all these trees, but this one tree you should not eat of, there's a certainty about it. There's no question mark about it. There's an exclamation point where God speaks. It's certain and it's true. And then we see in these chapters that God's way is the way of life. It's the way of life in the first chapters. Uh, here in the first chapter of the Bible, we have the introduction of the word life. God made man to live forever. To live forever. And that was the whole point of the tree of life. That when man partook of the tree of life, he would have... Uh, um, that he was created to have eternal life. God's way is the way of life. And then I notice in chapter 2, verse 16, that God spoke first to the man. God spoke first to the man, verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man. Now it's interesting that after the fall, when we come to chapter um, 3, that God also spoke first to the man after the fall. It was the woman who sinned first, but when God came for reckoning day, for accountability, he came first to the man, chapter 3, verse 9, and the Lord God called unto Adam, where are you? God spoke first to the man. This is God's way. And then the outcome of God's way, we read it throughout these two chapters, but it's summarized in chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw what he had made. This is after the creation of man. And behold, it was very good. It was very good. What God made was very good. Now, if you move to the next page, continuing on God's way, and then we'll come back to see what happened in chapter 3. God's way was a way of communion and fellowship. That's the sense you get as you move through the first two chapters of Genesis. Communion and fellowship. Communion between God and man. 
God created man for intimacy with himself. And there's a oneness, there's a fellowship, there's a communion, there's an openness, there's a transparency, there's a freedom in their relationship. And then God created union, uh, communion, union and fellowship between man and the woman. They were one flesh. That's the sense you get as you read these first two chapters, is that God designed that there should be union, communion, fellowship, oneness. And then we see in verse 29 in the first chapter that God in this world as he created it provided all that man needed. Verse 29, God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed and tells man how his needs are to be met. God says, I have given to you your provision. God provided for every need of man's to be met. And then we see in verse 25 of chapter 2 that the condition of man and woman before God and before each other is that they were not ashamed. It was a world free from shame because there was no guilt, because there was no sin, because there was no disobedience or rebellion. And in that obedient, unfallen state, they were not ashamed. What a way to live. This is what God created us for. This is the world as God intended it to be. And then as you overview these first two chapters, you see a world that is God-centered. A planet that God loves. A planet that God has made for himself, for his enjoyment, for his um, pleasure. And we see a world that is centered on God. Man and woman centered on God. He is their focus. He is their life. And then we come, and let me say, by the way, as you overview those first two chapters, you get a whole different view of God than what our world gives us today. Our world has a distorted, and even I'm afraid in our churches, so many times we have a distorted, perverted view of what God is really like, of what his ways are like. That's why we need to counsel our hearts according to the way of God, of the word and get our view of God and of his ways from the scripture. I find it very helpful not to fill my mind with books and magazines and television programs of this world because that way of thinking will ultimately shape what I believe and who I am. I want to shape my life by the word of God. As Spurgeon said, we should be so filled with the scripture that when someone pricks us, the blood that comes out is bibbling. And that's the kind of person I want to be. (laughs) So if your thinking is bibbling and, and you live in these first two chapters, you see that what God created is so good. It's a world of truth, a world of blessing, a world of goodness, a world of God's provision for man. Then we come to verse one of chapter three and we see a major, major change. A new way is introduced, a way that is contrary to God's way. And it is initiated this time not by God, but by Satan himself, by Satan. And the first verse of chapter 1 tells us the serpent was subtle. He was crafty, depending on which translation you have there. It was a way that was initiated by Satan. The operative word here is not blessing, but curse. Now notice as you get into chapter 3 that it was not man who was cursed by God, but God cursed the serpent and his seed, and God cursed the ground which man would have to till now to earn a living. But now instead of blessing, the curse has entered into the world. And instead of being based on truth, this way is based on deception. And we'll examine that deception in some greater detail here based on deception. And instead of uh, our lives being rooted in the certainty of God's word, now Satan calls God's word into question. Has God said? Now notice Satan did not doubt the existence of God and he did not tempt Eve to doubt the existence of God. He acknowledged the existence of God. 
But he cast doubt on what God had said. He cast doubt on the word of God. He put a question mark where God had put an exclamation point. So now there's a questioning of God's word. Instead of the way of life, we have the way of death. There's a way that seems right unto a man, Proverbs 14, verse 12 tells us, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Satan came, Jesus told us, to kill and to destroy. And so in verse 19 of chapter 3, God says to Adam, Dust thou art, and to dust shalt thou return. This is the way of death. It's, it's the fruit, it's the consequences of man believing the deception and the lie and acting on it rather than acting on the truth. And the outcome, the outcome of God's creation was that it was very good. Then you come to chapter 3 and you see, and in Scripture it's very important to look for first mention of words. Where does a word first appear? It gives light into sometimes into its meaning. And in chapter 3 we have the first mention of words such as afraid. Afraid, curse, enmity, uh, sorrow, thorns, sweat, angry, chapter 4, verse 6, murder, not the word, but the description of it in chapter 4. And we have, by the way, in chapter 3, not the words mentioned, but I believe the entrance into the world of blame and of bitterness. Of blame and of bitterness. You say, where do you get that? In chapter 3, verse um, 12, the man said to God, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. We have the entrance here of these, these problems that have gotten us into so much trouble today. Blame and bitterness against the woman you gave to be with me or against now women blaming and being bitter against the husband God that you gave to be with me. And now instead of communion and fellowship between God and man and between man and woman, we have conflict and barriers. Conflict and barriers. Broken relationships, fragmented relationships, broken homes. This was not God's intent. This was not God's plan. This was not God's way. It is the fruit uh, of man and woman choosing their own way and instead of God's way. And now instead of man just being given by God all that he needs to meet his needs, uh, man has to sweat to get his needs met. And all the men said, Amen. yes, it's true. By the sweat of your face, God said, you will have to till the earth and, add a, and, and it will be with sorrow that the earth will yield its fruit up to you. And now instead of the man and woman being in an unashamed condition before God, what do we find in chapter 3? They hid themselves. Hiding comes into chapter 3. And just as I was reviewing this passage this morning, I, I looked again at verse 10, and to me one of the most tragic verses in all of the Old Testament. And uh, Adam said to God, when God said, Where are you? Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, and I hid myself. That's not the way God intended it to be. God intended that, yes, we should hear his voice in the garden. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still in the roses and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own. That's what God intended, that there should be that open, sweet communication that when we hear his voice, as the Shulamite bride says in the Song of Solomon, cause me to hear thy voice in the garden. I come to the garden to meet with my beloved. God intended that when we hear his voice, we should be drawn to him, we should be wooed to him. 
him. We should run into his arms. We should have an intimate love relationship with him. But instead, now, messed up by sin, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. And I hid myself. And so we run from the very voice that is our life, that is our hope. They found themselves hiding from God. And now instead of a God-centered universe, we have a man-centered world. Now let me say this. God is still the center of all things. But we have a man and woman who now look upon themselves as a center of all things. Well, I want to develop just a little bit the whole matter of deception and then truth and then we'll look at what are some of the lies that we as women are tempted to believe and what is the truth that sets us free but just briefly let's look at this matter of deception first we can be deceived in a number of different ways we can be deceived by satan himself and we read in chapter 3 of Genesis that the, certain, uh, the serpent, Eve says, deceived me. He beguiled me, again, depending on your translation, and I did eat. The serpent himself deceived. In John 8, verse 44, Jesus says that Satan is a liar and he's the father of it. There is no truth in him and never has been from the beginning. There's no truth in him, even as there is no deception in God, not a hint, not a shadow of turning. He is guileless, and yet in, in Satan, exactly the opposite is true. There is no truth in him. He is a deceiver. He is a liar, and we can be deceived directly by Satan, and Satan himself, in fact, is the fountainhead of all lies from whatever source. Now, the Scripture also teaches that we can be deceived by others. Ephesians 5, verse 6 is one of a number of references that tell us that we can be deceived by others. And it's interesting to me as I jot down another reference there, Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 22, Ezekiel 13, verse 22, that we can even be deceived by religious leaders, by spiritual leaders. And a sad, sad verse here, God says to the spiritual leaders of Israel with lies, you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad. And you have strengthened the hands of the wicked that he should not return from his wicked way by promising him life. That's what even spiritual leaders can do. That's why we need to get our foundation, our girding up from the word of God. God says to these spiritual leaders, I want to give joy to the righteous, but you have made the righteous sad. And you have strengthened the hands of the wicked by promising them life, by saying peace and life when they should have no hope for peace and life. And as a result, he will not turn from his wicked way. Now, we could spend a great deal of time on this matter of deception. Uh, one more here, number three. Uh, we can be deceived by not only others, but by ourselves. And scripture has much to say about being self-deceived being self-deceived, and that is one of the greatest dangers that you and I face. That's why we must be constantly taking our hearts and our minds and putting them through the grid of the truth of God's Word and letting God's Word be a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. And as I open God's Word, I'm asking Him, Lord, show me Your truth. Show me Your ways. Shine the light on any deception that has crept into my heart, any ways that I am self-deceived, any ways that I think I have no sin, I'm deceiving myself, First John says. Show me where I have sin. I want to walk in the light so that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, can cleanse me from all sin. Now, deception in our culture. 
And we could spend a great deal of time on this. We won't. But the scripture has much to say, particularly in the books of Romans and 2 Thessalonians and the book of Revelation, about how entire cultures can become deceived. And Romans 1 talks about those who change the truth of God into a lie. And as a result, God gives them up to depravity, to vile affections. And then this sobering verse in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 speaks of those who would not receive, who refused to receive the love of the truth so that they might be saved. And for this cause, and this verse is mystery to me, but scripture says it, so I believe it is true, that in some sense God actually sends them delusion. God turns them over to deception so that they should believe a lie because they refuse to love the truth. They refuse to receive the truth. Therefore, God gives them over to believe a lie. And what a description this is of what has happened in our culture. When you see what's going on, even in the highest levels of our government today, and you see the response of the American people, they are deluded. They are deceived. They have been given over to a strong delusion to believe a lie. And you see the slogans of deception all throughout our culture. I hope you don't watch a lot of television, but if you do, begin to examine what you're hearing to listen carefully and pick up the lies that are embedded deeply in our culture and in the minds of our people. You can never be too rich or too thin. A woman's body belongs to herself. It takes a village to raise a child. He who has the most toys wins. Character doesn't matter. Tolerance. Every viewpoint is equally valid. And not only do you have to let me have my viewpoint, you have to agree that my viewpoint, as perverted and twisted as it may be in your eyes, is equally valid with your viewpoint. It's a lie. But it is that pluralistic, tolerant thinking that has pervaded our culture. No difference between men and women, except for the obvious physiological ones. And really, this whole lie, to me, is such an exercise in futility. I mean, you think about the obvious differences between men and women just if, um, in the way that we relate to each other, in the way that we communicate. And uh, your husband talks to his mother for 20 minutes and he gets off the phone and you say, how is she? And he says, fine. And that's his summary of the 20-minute conversation. You talk to your mother and you get off the phone and your husband says, how is she? And it takes you 40 minutes to tell him the 20-minute conversation. Don't tell me we aren't different. <laughs> And everywhere you look in our culture, you see the signs of deception. Now, there's a particular sense, and I'm not going to go into any depth on this, and something I'm still really seeking to understand the heart of God in relation to myself, but a particular sense, I believe, in which deception affects women, women and deception. I know that 1 Timothy 2, verse 14, tells us that Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. Now, we could spend an entire session um, having someone more gifted and skilled than I exegete that passage. But there is a sense in which Eve was deceived. Now, there are those who believe, um, and I tend to agree, that there is a sense in which women are more vulnerable to deception than men. And it's interesting to me that... Um, a huge part of the deception, I believe, as you go back to the original account, is 
that we have here in this exchange between Adam and Eve and the serpent, the first role reversal. And that is at the heart, I believe, of much of the deception that puts women in bondage. Here we have the first instance of a passive man and an assertive woman. Now, for years I believed and taught uh, that the woman was alone when the serpent found her. But in more recent years, I discovered by looking at the passage, it's very clear um, that, and I don't know why I didn't see it years earlier, um, that's why I don't take my word for anything I say today, take God's word, because I'm still growing and learning. But the scripture says in chapter 3, verse 6 of Genesis, um, the woman took the fruit, she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Um, Then the eyes of both of them were opened. So, We have both the man and woman sinning here, not just by eating the forbidden fruit, but sinning in another fundamental way that we as the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve continue to sin to this day. Here we have the serpent coming, initiating contact with the woman, the conversation he initiates with the woman, though her husband apparently is standing right there with her. God had initiated the conversation, given the command to the man, and apparently before the woman was even created. So I believe the man was responsible as the covering, the head, the protection over that wife to communicate God's will and God's word to his wife. But Satan comes and he addresses the woman. He doesn't even, he ignores the man. He speaks to the woman and the woman, instead of looking to her husband, they're partners, heirs together of the grace of life. And instead of looking for receiving his covering and his protection as her head in that moment, she takes matters into her own hands. She decides to answer herself. With no regard for the man, she takes matters into her own hands. So we have here an assertive woman. And what does the man do? What is his sin in this instance? Even before he eats, he does nothing. He stands there. Now, we'll go till Jesus comes, probably deciding whether men are passive because women are assertive or women are assertive because men are passive. (laughs) The fact is we're both wrong. And we as women have a tremendous contribution we can make by taking our God-given place under the covering and the protection of God-ordained authority. We create a climate in which men are free to be men. And I am so... Um, weary of us as women blaming passive men for the problems in our homes and in our culture. Yes, it is a problem, but we as women are not responsible for the behavior of men. We are responsible for our own choices, and I believe we as women have made it incredibly difficult for men to be men. And that if we were willing to be clothed in that spirit of meekness and quietness, to trust in God, to come under God-ordained authority, that we would find men rising up really to be men. And that's the message I have of encouragement for women today. Now, let's move to this whole area of truth or consequences. Truth or consequences. And we either believe and act on the truth or we do experience consequences in our lives. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As he thinks in his heart, so is he. Invariably, behavior is based on beliefs. Our behavior is based on beliefs. Have you ever believed something that wasn't true? Of course, we all have. But I think of even childhood beliefs. For example, as a little girl, I remember hearing that when you come to a red light, you can't go. And I thought that meant 
You can't go. Your car won't move when you get to the red light. And you know, within the last year or two, I discovered that that wasn't true. Now, I discovered it longer ago than that, but I felt kind of silly when I discovered it's not that your car can't go, it's that you're not allowed to go when you come to the red light. Well, for some period of time, my, if I had been driving at that age, dang, that's why they don't let six-year-olds drive, um, I would have come to the red light and thought my car wouldn't move, couldn't move. Um, and in so many cases, our behavior, in each case, our behavior is determined by beliefs. You know, for years, people believed that the earth was flat. And so many decisions and fears and thoughts and books were based on that belief, which proved to be fallacious, proved to be false. And as we look at bondage and freedom, uh, let me just in an overview way suggest that there are steps to bondage which are exactly the counterpart to the steps to freedom. When we, uh, if we're going to end up in bondage, it begins first invariably with listening to a lie. Listening to a lie. And that's why it's so important, and I challenge women and young people to control the input that you allow into your life, to control the input you allow into your mind. I thank the Lord, and can I just say a word to you parents? Uh, I'm not a parent, but I'm the oldest of seven children, and I thank the Lord for the grace of God, though my parents were first-generation believers, and they didn't have all these seminars and conferences and books, but God gave them the wisdom to bring us children up in a greenhouse environment, a hothouse. We had no television in our home. My parents could afford one, but people used to feel sorry for us on occasion and give us a television. My dad would give it back. Um, and I thank the Lord that as long as we were growing up in that home, there was no television. That was not a legalistic thing. We didn't take a newspaper. And to this day, I can't stand touching the newsprint. Um, and it's not because there was anything considered inherently sinful about these things. It was that my parents felt it was so important to control the input that was going into our minds and into our hearts, the reading material, the things that we were exposed to. I don't think I ever heard a word of profanity until after I was um, out of high school, probably. And, and in today's world, that's very hard to imagine, but I'm not that old. There was a, a sense of protecting and so exposing our hearts to the ways and the word and the truth of God till we would come to love the word and the ways of God, to be, uh, have our hearts quickened by it, to be passionate for it, and so that we could quickly identify what was deceptive and false and untrue when we got out of the um, hothouse environment but important to control the sources of input into our lives. We, we receive lies in so many ways, through television, through magazines, through friends, through malls, through catalogs. And man, you don't think malls are that. You can't understand what the pull is on your wife. And I'll tell you, there is a pull into the heart, in the hearts of us women. And you can walk through a mall and just in so many ways have your mind um, exposed to the lie, exposed to the lies of what is valuable, what is beautiful, what is meaningful, what is important in life. We need to remember that the source of every lie is Satan himself. Now, listening to the lie doesn't put us into bondage. It just starts a pathway that ultimately leads to bondage. That's why it's important not to listen to the lie. Eve's first mistake was not eating the fruit. Her first mistake was listening to the serpent. Her next mistake was answering him. 
But then we listen to the lie. After we listen to the lie, then we dwell on it. And if I could liken it to um, gardening or farming, first the seed is sown. That's listening to the lie. And then dwelling on the lie, that's watering it, fertilizing it, listening to it again, having it repeated till it begins to wear a path in your heart. And then comes the point where we believe the lie. And that's the point in the, in the gardening illustration in which the seed takes root. It, it, it begins to grow up believing the lie. And then once we believe the lie, we are going to act on the lie, to act on it. Every act of sin begins with a lie. Every act of sin begins with a lie that I listened to, I dwelled on it, I believed it, and when I act on it, that's the fruit. It produces fruit. The seed is sown, it's watered, it's fertilized, then it takes root, and then it produces fruit. And ultimately, that will lead, acting on the lie, over and over again, will lead me to bondage. Every area of bondage in my life is rooted in a lie. In a lie. Bondage comes with, with bondage comes destruction, fear, anger, and death. That verse in Jonah chapter 2 verse 8 is very um, instructive to me. It says, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. God has mercy for us to live in a fallen, sick, corrupt world. He has grace to help us in our time of need. But those who observe, those who listen to and dwell on and believe and act on lies, emptiness, lying vanities, they forsake their own mercy. There's no grace, there's no mercy that will get them through those situations if they insist on observing those lying vanities. And that's where we read again in 2 Thessalonians 2, refuse to believe the truth that God gives us over to deception. Now, if we want to come to freedom, we must go the opposite pathway. First, we must listen to the truth. Listen to the truth. Feeding our minds with the truth. Filling our minds with the Word of God. And then not only reading it, but meditating on it. And that's where Scripture memory is so important. And Dr. Bubeck has been such a challenge and a conviction to my own heart during these days. And I see a man who's filled with the Word of God. Uh, dwelling, meditating on the scripture, and then believing the scripture, applying faith. Hebrews says that the word of God had no effect in the lives of the Jews because though they knew it, they didn't believe it. They didn't exercise faith. And then once we believe it, we will act on it. And this is where the fruits of righteousness and obedience begin to come forth in our lives. And that ultimately leads to freedom, peace, joy, and freedom. It's through the renewing of our minds with the word of God that our lives are transformed and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now, just three suggestions here. Then we're going to take a brief break, uh, just a stand up break and uh, then come back to the specific lies and uh, truth. First, we have to identify what are the areas of bondage or sinful behavior in my life? What are the areas of bondage or sinful behavior? Then identify the lie that is, or the lies that are at the root of that sinful behavior or bondage. What have I been believing that's not true? And then we need to replace or counter the lies with the corresponding truth. Replace or counter the lies with the corresponding truth. Jot down this reference, if you would, right there. Psalm 120, verses 1 through 4. Psalm 120, verses 1 through 4. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you? What will God do to you? And what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you. God will punish you, deceitful tongue. How does God deal with lies and deception? 
What is his counterattack? With a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom tree. We counter the lies, the deceitful tongue and lies, with the warrior's sharp arrows. What is the warrior's sharp arrow? It's the word of God. And Augustine had this to say about that passage. He said, The word of God must come like a piercing arrow bearing a flaming coal so that this forest of worldly thoughts will be set on fire, become cleared ground where God may build his temple. When the word of God comes with burning fire to clear away the worldly deceptive thoughts in our lives, then there's a clear place where God can build a temple of truth and righteousness in our lives. So identify the areas of sinful bondage or behavior, identify the lies at the root, and then we must learn to replace or counter the lies with a corresponding truth. Look more specifically, and here's where it gets interesting, at some of the lies women believe. Now, let me say first several things about this list. First of all, this is not an exhaustive list. Second of all, it's not lies that just women believe. I just can't feel free to speak for men. So these are lies that I know that many women believe. And then realize it's not everyone believes all of these lies. Probably not anyone believes all of these lies. And we have our variations on these lies. But these are some that I have found are particularly common to many of us as Christian women. And here again, these are lies that we as women may not consciously believe. Most of these are things that Christian women would not say they believe. But we live as if we do believe these things. And I would suggest this, what you believe is not determined by what you say you believe. It's not revealed by what you say you believe. It's revealed by how you live. And so I counsel with women who are living as if they believe these lies, but then they say they don't believe these things. I say, you really do believe these lies if you're living that way. What we live, the way we live reveals what we really believe. Now, some of these lies are particularly deceptive because they are half-truths. And that's what makes them so deceptive. But half-truths are lies. And they lead to bondage as surely as outright lies. Now, some of these statements... Um, are going to will be controversial. I'll just tell you that before we get into them. And I'm going to move very quickly through them. I'm not going to take time to defend any of these viewpoints or many of them at all. Uh, but don't get hung up on one or two or three that particularly raise a question mark in your mind. And I'm still growing. I'm still learning. As I understand the ways of God at this point, I see these statements to be false. Maybe when I teach this a year from now, I will see some of these differently. But don't get hung up on one or two that uh, particularly um, you say, now, I don't really think that's a lie. Look at the big picture here. Look at the whole picture, and I think you will agree that on the whole, here is a body of falsehood that many of us as women have come to embrace. And I believe that um, the, in the first session, all those words that we used to describe how so many women are living today in bondage and confusion and despair and hurt and anger, I believe that these lies account for those results in women's lives. And that if we want to really help women today, we have to help them identify what are the lies that they've been believing and get them back to the truth. 